This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Here on episode 15, The Fall of Al Goldstein, part 2. We'll do a quick recap for those who didn't hear last week's part 1. Fuck you all! You low-life piece of shit, go fuck yourself. My office is right here on West 14th Street. Come get me, I'm gonna kick your fucking ass, you... Fuck you! 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 1,800 issues of Screw appeared over its 34-year run. From 1968 to 2002, about a thousand episodes of Midnight Blue appeared on Manhattan Cable TV over 27 years, starting in 1975, one of the very first shows on cable TV. Publisher Al Goldstein felt each issue every week was another strike against the establishment, another victory. But as we described in the last episode, the unthinkable happened and Al Goldstein lost everything, ending up on the streets. New York's most famous homeless person. Josh, for a year and a half, I've doubted myself. I really wanted to, to kill myself because I felt Al Goldstein's gone. You know, it's like T.S. Eliot, the empty people, the hollow people. I felt I was washed up after 34 years of screw. Yet somehow, it was around this time, in the early 2000s, that Goldstein met his fifth, or was it sixth, wife, Christine. He sometimes called her Ava a young, pretty, intelligent, if somewhat naive, woman in her 20s. When Al was losing his possessions and properties left and right, her parents' apartment in Queens would serve as a sort of halfway house before Al ended up on the streets. Christine's saint-like family took him into their small apartment. You know the end of It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey's friends come to his rescue? Yes, yes. That's what your life sounds like today. Every time I call, your wife is there... The guy from uh, X on Demand is there. I'm calling. Everybody. Can I tell you how exciting it is? Christy, you know, I've cheated on every marriage. This is the first one. I'm wearing a wedding ring. Her loyalty is so unbelievable. And her great legs are so, so special to me. I hear she's a knockout. She's dropped it beautiful. And everyone told her not to date me. And that turned her on. The nice thing is... Ava has three sisters who are very nice. Her father's a Hindu priest. Can you imagine a Jew winds up with, with a Hindu priest? I can't imagine it any other way. Can you imagine your young daughter bringing Al Goldstein home? A 300-pound, 69-year-old, burned-out, homeless Jew pornographer with a gastrointestinal pouch so he could keep inhaling pastrami? Oi, what a catch! He hauled boxes of useless, unopened gadgets and fax machines and Saruti suits that no longer fit into the sisters' rooms and closets. Whatever Al could salvage from his half-dozen Manhattan storage spaces before they got repossessed, which they did. Here's Christine at the time, talking to my associate and former Screw editor, Richard Jacoma. I don't know what's going to happen, so it's kind of really... I'm not doing well. Yeah. Well, how much money have you borrowed from your parents to take care of him, like... About sixty thousand dollars. Six, sixty thousand. Mhm. Good gosh. I, well, you said that it, like. Uh, to move. Yeah, moving the stuff from Florida to here was like eleven thousand and eleven. No, it was like twenty-two thousand. Right. Yeah, but so it got it doubled. Then I have another ten ten thousand, which is the other storage that I owe. Uh huh. Fifty-two hundred. Plus, they're going to charge me storage fees. Then this other one that I'm moving the stuff to now to Queens. I tell you, this girl came off normal and intelligent. But she was excited by Al Goldstein. 
What a dreamboat. As an Army veteran, Al received four Viagra pills a month from the Veterans Administration. He said, I served my country for two years, but I'm only entitled to four hard-ons a month. I don't want to lie on his bed. Yeah, because he's not very sanitary at the moment. Um, just, you know, with his drooling and then his psoriasis. With his drooling and his psoriasis. The newlywed lovebirds nested there in Queens. But bedbugs followed Al from the homeless shelter. My ex-boss, the former millionaire with homes around the world, tried to get jobs at Walmart and Starbucks. They would not hire him as he showed up on lithium with brown cigar juice dripping from his chin. Would you want a latte from that man? After many months, Christine's saintly parents finally started to perhaps feel uh, a bit cramped with Goldstein's carcass in their apartment. Predicament he's in, but... Al didn't do that. Al's talking about, oh, please get me a fucking job. Mm-hmm. Al cannot handle a job right now. Oh, no. Absolutely not. He, he would... is drooling on himself. He could hardly stand up. From Television City in New York, Al Goldstein presents Midnight Blue. A big, fat, obese man like me having sex on Midnight Blue? It's disgusting. Welcome to Midnight Blue at 28 years, the longest-running show on cable TV. Tonight, Screw News plus the infamous Al Goldstein. Also tonight, the best of the Midnight Blue interview with Marilyn Manson, legendary film director Russ Meyer, and Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller. In the final years of Screw, what were once beacon calls for freedom of the press became a pathetic tirade of Goldstein's personal slights and attacks. He ran the magazine into the ground and was arrested for publishing threats against one of his former wives, whom he accused of introducing AIDS to America after filleting a witch doctor in Haiti, and claiming his estranged son, a Park Avenue attorney, was murdered in a transsexual love triangle. Goldstein requested that terrorists fly a plane into Brooklyn DA Charles Hines' building and ran full-page aerial directions to Hines' office and screw. And after decades of winning lawsuits against him and screw, his fat ass and mouth were finally brought down by a former secretary he harassed. President Clinton was nearly toppled by Monica Lewinsky. Goldstein was toppled by Jennifer Lozinski. She trounced him in court for the first time, and he was sentenced to 60 days in Rikers Island. Goldstein had stared down a dozen judges who wanted him dead, and he came out victorious every time. But this time it is sentencing for which he came dressed in prison stripes. He told Asian criminal court judge Daniel Chun to hold the starch in my shirts and keep the lo mein hot. Al Grandpa Munster Lewis was his character witness. Lewis was so old, Al thought he'd die before lunch. What do you think? I fell off a turnip truck and don't know what I'm doing? He rambled, calling Justice Chun an amateur. At Rikers Island... An NYPD detective tried to sneak in a pastrami sandwich from the Carnegie, but the sandwich was confiscated before he could get it to Al. He was a medical time bomb and fell into diabetic shock by the ninth day in Rikers, and somehow his brilliant First Amendment lawyer Harold Farringer and his assistant Erica Dubnow were now able to get him released. There's no way he would have survived in Rikers another day.
I hate pornography today, because there are 300 films a week, they're shot in video, the girls are bored, the guys are on uh, uh, Viagra. The best films were in our era, in the 70s, they were shot in 35 millimeter. People like Gloria Leonard, it was a political statement, make love, not war. Annette Haven. Uh, Annette Haven. The girls were beautiful and they gave a shit. They do make They didn't have silicone they would do eight films a year these people do eight films a day how could Ron Jeremy have been famous but, but uh, I mean ugliness rules the films of today are an insult I never thought I would say such a thing said Goldstein about porn films of today but have they no taste Al met his founding partner Jim Buckley when they were both working at Countrywide Publications in 1968 here is a heavily condensed reading of the Birth of Screw chapter from our book, I Goldstein, My Screwed Life. From the Birth of Screw. We talked about how the sexual act was warped and sick in these puritanical papers. Why weren't skin flicks and fuck books reviewed? Why were pussy pictures reserved only for the rich who could afford them? Where was the equality and democracy of smut? Jim said, Let's do our own paper. I said, Let's do a sex paper. A newspaper that could be everything that the National Mirror was not. To detail sex but never violence. The National Mirror denigrates sex. Why don't we have a sex-positive paper? I'm 32 years old, not really getting laid. I'm obsessed with eating pussy. I know all the scams, said Al. Jim, however, was a sexual neophyte. He wasn't that interested in sex. Raised in Catholic orphanages, he was small and lean with lots of black hair. Buckley was considered quite handsome with an undeniably innocent Catholic schoolboy look. He never cheated on his wife. Born in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1944, he spent years in Catholic orphanages where, as he said, life was like a bowl of shit. We thought up the idea of Screw and laid out plans in the summer of 68. Buckley and I invested $350 for the first issue, 175 bucks each. The printer promptly burned the plates and mats and any evidence that he had printed such a thing. We'd put a $75 ad in some other underground paper announcing Screw. The staff was just me, Jim Buckley, and my wife, Mary Phillips. The first issue of Screw hit the newsstands on November 4, 1968, the day Nixon was elected. A 12-page black-and-white tabloid. It cost 25 cents. Newspapers were handled by distributors, none of whom would touch it, so we tried to hustle it into newsstands by hand. Most news vendors instantly rejected it. For eight weeks, cigar-chomping fat guys with aprons told me I was vile and should be ashamed. They yelled and threw copies back in my face. One called me a disgusting Jew bastard. I remember the first newsstand that accepted Screw. It was at 53rd and 3rd, an all-night stand still there today. It took months to get it on the newsstand at 72nd and Broadway. Ultimately, we managed to get it on about 22 newsstands, the ones where the news dealers were blind. The first issue was a whopping run of 4,500, which sold out. 
Myron Fass at Countrywide fired me the moment Screw came out. He said it was because my grammar was so bad. I'd lasted 10 months at Countrywide, and it was true I still hadn't mastered the alphabet. Before our 10th issue, we were selling over 30,000 copies per week and surpassed 50,000 by issue number 11. By the time we were first arrested, Screw's sales on Manhattan newsstands outsold Time, Life, Newsweek, or Playboy. Of course, we were only available on Manhattan newsstands. Beat cops warned our street vendors they'd be arrested along with the publishers for selling Screw. All guts and no brains, we challenged the police commissioner to come get us or shut up. This pronouncement was in issue number three, but the NYPD was biding their time, collecting issues as evidence. Screw gave the world's oldest profession its first advertising medium and enabled the man on the street to get laid within an hour. Gore Vidal called us the only newspaper in America that properly serviced its readers. Screw also ran the first weekly gay column of any newsstand publication by Lige and Jack before the Stonewall riot. We were now the sword of the sexual revolution, the consumer reports of sex. A typical 1970 bust concerned dildo ads. The state of New York argued in superior court that dildos could be used for criminally immoral purposes. There were 16 early obscenity arrests in a row every other week. One arrest in 69 involved the depiction of Jesus on the cross. There was a big debate in court with expert witnesses testifying as to whether Jesus' cock was erect or not in the illustration. By early 69, Screw was so successful on the newsstands it made Myron Fass irrelevant, driving his whole dreck factory of magazines and others like it to the very bottom of the newsstand. We embraced a huge market no one knew existed. What was missing from Playboy centerfolds, sexploitation films, automobile and cigarette ads with sex was simple honesty. We soon had imitators on the stands. We also made enemies fast. Buckley and I were fingerprinted, charged with obscenity, and held behind bars. This occurred eight hours after Screw hit the stand showing a Mayor Lindsay composite with his cock hanging out. It was a fairly large cock and provoked controversy over whether it was real, erect, or in repose. My third arrest, I'm in the Tomes jail with Buckley, charged again with promoting obscenity. 235.05 on the books. There are six blind news dealers arrested for selling screw in the cell with us. Each one holds a cane. I tell Buckley, whatever you do, don't say who we are. They'll bash us on the head with their canes. They were so angry they might have killed us, so we kept quiet. Junkies are peeing against the walls, nodding out and puking over other junkies lying on the floor. One of the blind news dealers is tapping his cane to find the only urinal, and I'm suddenly overcome with guilt. How could a blind dealer know what he was selling? This was under Mayor John Lindsay's administration, a typical liberal scumbag of the time. I began to hate Lindsay, and he holds the distinction of having his head put in the shitless toilet bowl of my weekly editorial more times than anyone. It soon became routine. Goldstein and Buckley, handcuffed, brought to the 13th precinct, led away to 100 Center Street, the cop car veers wildly through traffic, bumping us around. The 13th Precinct cops become nicer, most having now heard of Screw. There was even a discernible police readership by now. As I look back on it, well, I remember I had 
uh, a girl named Maureen Kelly, a hooker, used to pay a hundred dollars to come in every Tuesday at two o'clock to blow me and Buckley. But by the third week, we felt it was like a dental appointment. Goldstein reviewed a two-bit porn film destined to play maybe a few days in New York. The film was Deep Throat, and he wrote his biggest rave review ever in Screw. The next day, there were lines around the block, the first time this had happened for a porn film. So Mayor Lindsay busted the theater. The news of this made headlines around the country. Deep Throat became a sensation. Linda Lovelace's one witty line... When asked if she would ever do an endorsement, she said she'd like to do one for a mouthwash. Linda Lovelace became a household name almost overnight, and two years later she had Goldstein physically thrown out of her big press conference. Only in America could a cocksucker go so far, he said. And now I'm coming back. I did a porno film two years ago. I had to take 400 milligrams of Viagra. Can you think of Larry Flint or you having to do it when I did? Get this film rented. It's Metro. It's called Al Goldstein and Ron Jeremy Get Screwed. Ronnie paid me $500 to eat pussy, and then he said he'd give me another $1,000 if I come on camera. Being a Jew, I took the, the Viagra and I popped a load. And I, it's funny, I was nominated as Best Supporting Porno Actor. Can you imagine any other 67-year-old man being nominated as Best Supporting Al said if he won the award, he planned to have someone from the Association of Retired Persons pick it up. Goldstein's full-time bodyguard, John Flynn, was a former NYPD vice squad cop who had busted newsstands for selling screw. Flynn was a tall, dapper Irishman who'd done his 20 years on the force. When he would drive out to Times Square, all the black hookers would say, Hey, John Flynn, looking good, Officer Flynn. Want a discount tonight? And no cop car would dare give that limo a ticket with Flynn at the wheel, lest they had a stern dressing down from Flynn. They gave him a lot of space. Flynn would sit in the reception office at Screw every morning, arriving with his cup of coffee, daily news, and donut, just like a cop. After 14 years, Flynn left the limo idling one night as he left the car. It was stolen. When Al emerged from the restaurant, he fired Flynn that night. The limo was never recovered. Let's travel back to the early 1950s, when young Al Goldstein shadowed his father at the Daily Mirror. And I remember when I worked for the New York Daily Mirror, and uh, we, we had a lot of pornography because the photographers got it from the Vice Squad and seized it in, in porno bus. But it was so mysterious and exciting. When I saw, I saw guys, but then I got it from the cops. I remember uh, something called... Uh, when you say you got it from the cops. They gave it to the photographers. I was too young. And then they'd hand it out to people. Uh, uh, you mean to friends, like behind the yeah, scenes? Yeah, right, exactly. It wouldn't, I mean, this it, wasn't it, official it, policy. No. It was, it was supposed to have been yeah. Despite, destroyed. Yeah, exactly. You know, but cop, of course it wouldn't. Cops were friends with the photographers. There's something called Mickey Jelke, J-E-L-K-E, the oleomargarine hair. I remember that was like the first scandal I... In 1952, the heir to oleomargarine, a New York Cafe Society millionaire, was busted in a pimping and pornography ring. This was so scandalous in those days, it would almost be like being a member of ISIS today. The pint-sized Mickey Jelke in 1952 produced his own personal pornography. 
When he was arrested, the Vice Squad cops, of course, passed some of the pictures to the photographers at the Daily Mirror, where Goldstein moonlighted in his father's photo lab. 16-year-old Alvin saw the photos showing sex never seen, which was beyond shocking in those days. And it was like such a scandal because he, he was using hookers. And then I'd see the most beautiful women in the world sucking dick. And, and, and I remember one picture, I was looking at the back, I jerked off to it. I think my record is 140 times. When Al was a teenager, even novels depicting sex were totally illegal in the United States. They had to be smuggled in from Olympia Press in France. I could, I could jerk off to words. And then when I was 14 or 15, I discovered... Henry Miller, like a jerk off the Tropic of Capricorn and Tropic of Cancer. Just a book like that was that hot back then. I remember Henry Miller and Tropic of Capricorn spent four pages describing pussies. I'd like to reread them. It was so exciting. Don't forget, I'm a teenager. I, I didn't have sex. And just, it was all, our minds were running to test, test the testosterone was galloping. And the idea of a girl putting my dick Putting her out. precious perfect lips never or, or something so it foul. Yeah, yeah. It never happened. The kids of today really don't get this. It's all so accessible. I think something is missing. Goldstein's father, Sam, who worked in the mailroom at Screw when he was in his 70s, got Al a waiter job at Grossinger's when he was 16. The Borschbelt summer job of waiter was a rite of passage for thousands of Jewish boys in the 1940s. Al was assigned to the kids' dining room, the minor leagues, where they test you before moving you on to the adults. But he was fired for telling children with special orders to go fuck themselves. My father threw me out of my house for six weeks because he thought I was a communist. And when I joined the American Civil Liberties Union, I was 15, my father threw me out of the house. Where did you stay? I had to stay at friends' houses where they put me up. So I've been a member of the ACLU since I was 15. My father came from a world in Russia, and I mispronounced the word pro- programs. Programs? Yeah, however you say Problem. it. Yeah. My father came from a world where the government could kill you. Yeah. So my father Constant. walked around frightened. And I talk about this, I think, in Alicia's book. Sam Goldstein threw young Alvin out of the house when he was 15 years old after he joined the American Civil Liberties Union. His father was so cowed, he walked around saying, Sir, to elevator operators, Al said. Al's mother had an affair with Al's diet doctor the doctor who prescribed amphetamines for Al to lose weight as a teenager. The much older Dr. Stone took his mother on cruises and trips to Europe and told Sam Goldstein he looked at her as a daughter. He bought her a Cadillac. As far as Al could tell, his mother's adultery made his father seem totally impotent. Al felt humiliated on behalf of his cuckolded but clueless dad. Al never wanted to become cuckolded like his dad, he said, so he cheated on his first four wives. His attitude as a man was crippled by the same guilt, the same middle-class bourgeois double standards that everyone else suffered through. America was the most sexually fucked-up country in the world. And that's why I was born, said Goldstein. And I think maybe that's why there's so much compensation on my part. Here's my father's afraid of everyone, loves whatever government says, and here with me, you give me a white line, I'll cross it. Here I am doing drugs. And, 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 and obscene and an outlaw. I think it's my father, it's called reaction formation. I think uh, that's why, I mean, why am I such a pussy? Yeah, I'd love to taste the pussy. I think because of my mother's sexual, uh, lack of sexual fulfillment gave me a burden to make sure that every woman I'm with 
as an orgasm. If a woman came to me to suck my dick, I'd rather I'd rather go down on her. Don't you really know a woman when you taste her? You know her better. This morning, <laughs> you'll find a surprise. You may still be in for some surprises. You know a little more about her. And, but if you can get that smile on her face, you don't see a smile on a girl's face when she's in front of you sucking your dick. Goldstein had more balls than anyone I've ever met. He was arrested for publishing a photo of an erection with what the law considered no redeeming social value. Al argued in court that an erection had its own redeeming value. He won. During Goldstein and Buckley's ferocious three-year obscenity trial in Wichita, Kansas, from 1974 to 77, the federal government sought to lock them up for 60 years. Buckley opted for an escape hatch and sold his half-share in Screw to Goldstein for a million dollars if the government would drop charges against him. They did. Buckley did what any sane man would do and bailed out from Screw forever, after six years as co-publisher. But Goldstein continued to soldier through, risking his freedom and his life. He was hospitalized with a bleeding tracheostomy in his neck during the trial. But after three years, the harrowing trial was over with Goldstein victorious. This is excerpted from our book, I, Goldstein. One of the debacles in Kansas that repeatedly surfaced in court against Screw was the angle of dangle principle. The big threat of obscenity was whether it appealed to prurient interest. Aside from being dirty, morbid, and offensive, the contents of Screw was only deemed criminal if it was sexy enough to, in the words of legalese, create an erection in a male or a moist vaginal area in a female. The prosecution, while cross-examining Mr. Average Citizen on the stand, had to determine if Screw went beyond community standards. The defense would extract testimony from offended citizens that Screw's material was, in fact, too grotesque, disgusting, or shocking to inspire an erection or moist vaginal area in them. Average citizens would, of course, state that they had most certainly not been aroused by Screw, which left the prosecution in the awkward position of extracting confessions from their own expert witnesses, like Fordham University's Father Schroth or NYU sociology law professor Dr. Ernest Vanderhaag, that Screw did in fact arouse an erection in them. Put in the position of having to admit to a boner on the stand, expert Puritans waxed apoplectic. Thus, the prosecution would crumble on the matter of prurient interest. No one would admit to a hard-on, said Goldstein. So it ended in a hung jury. After the dust settled, Goldstein invited the Kansas jurors, who'd held out for his freedom, to New York at Screw's expense for a victory celebration at Plato's retreat. Five of them came. There were many women in the great pornographer's life. Let's just go over two of them here, starting with B-movie actress Linnea Quigley, whom Al was engaged to when he lived in his Pompano Beach mansion, although he paid her $200 per orgasm. The first time I met Linnea was at the Friars in L.A. I was with Ron Jeremy, and Ronnie brought over Linnea and Heidi Weiss. And I remember Heidi didn't like me, but Linnea did. And I remember then Linnea and I went over to my apartment, and she blew me. I'm on the couch. Without money? 
I gave her $200. She said it would help her. And then we got in the habit that I always gave her $200. Even when we were engaged, I'd give her money. But but but, but I, but I, being a Jew, I made a change. I said, Linnea, we're going to get married. You're, you're my fiancé. I'd like to have a special price. I'd like to have it that after the $200, the second ejaculation is only $100. <laughs> So yeah, but yeah, that's a reasonable request. Yeah, it was. So she accepted it. I miss Linnea deeply, and if I had gone bankrupt, uh, she's totally self-involved. But I like that she made ninety-five movies, no porno. But I love Dean Harris. I love. She had wonderful orgasms. I miss her the most. But she dumped me, and dumped me hard because I had I no longer could pay her as the cleaning woman. She dumped you when you started to lose money and things started. Yes, to, and, and when you and, weren't as yes, rich as yes, exactly. You weren't as rich. They all did too. Rose Robbins, who was engaged to the lawyer, dumped me too. I mean, I, I think women are so predatory. The power of money over women is extraordinary. Unbelievable. My Japanese girl. It's not that way for men. Okay. Men are attracted to beauty. Women are attracted to money. That's the quid pro quo. And then there was Venice, the gorgeous fifteen hundred dollar an hour call girl who saw Al for years and took pity on him, giving him money back when he was in the homeless shelter. She was a $1,500 call girl because I'm a Jew. I got the Jew rate of $200. Okay. She gave me $1,000 back when I was at the homeless shelter. Can you imagine the hook of giving a John money back? She knew I was in, in, in such need. That's, a goal, a hook, that's the hooker with a golden heart. And let me tell you, it's totally crazy. There was one time she was blowing me. I so I'm, in, I'm in the New York City townhouse, this is like 88, and Venice uh, uh, said to me, put a load your shotgun, because I always was afraid of being assassinated, I had a 12-gauge shotgun, I put it against the head, cocked it, and she said, I want it against my head, so I want to know if when you come, you're going you're gonna to lose all control and blow my head off. Now, even though I knew the cops wouldn't believe it, I mean, they would think I, I would it would have been like Specs, I would have been charged with murder. It was so, it got her so excited. Look at it, the hooker, she's sort of bored by everything. And here she found it exciting. All I kept thinking about it, she stuck in my dick, is don't squeeze the trigger. 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 Al Goldstein finally perished in a Brooklyn nursing home in 2013. He made it to 77. Back in the 1970s, even though certain friends and agents thought I should be at the Daily News or the New Yorker or SNL, that I would blow a career in big journalism, I knew my place was to stand behind Goldstein. The precedents he set, the scenes that played out like Marx Brothers movies in court during battles which he won, all seemed more important to me than the mainstream media. And there was Screw Magazine piled up on every single newsstand in New York, stacked high right alongside the Daily News and the New York Post, thanks to beloved Gambino family captain and teamster boss Robert DiBernardo, who controlled newsstand distribution. Goldstein always signed off on the headlines at our weekly editorial meetings. I could come up with banner headlines like sex and diarrhea or voodoo and vomit or put shemp on the cover and know that millions of New Yorkers would see it every week on the subways and kiosks of New York. It was beautiful. 
Imagine having a boss who berates his editors for not insulting him enough in print. Publicly, we had to refer to him as a fat pig. Only in private could we speak of our awe and admiration of him and bask in the greatness of his grossness. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and links to Al's autobiography, I Goldstein, which I co-wrote. It's much better than what we presented here, believe me. See you next time.